Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine. We'd love to have you join us for worship Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., currently on Zoom and broadcast live on Facebook. Visit our website at hopegateway.com to learn more. Whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Morning, Hope Gateway. My name is Ophelia Hukini. She, her, and hers are my pronouns. I get to be the worship coordinator here at Hope Gateway. And I just also want to say in response to Erica and to Amelia, um, I also live in a place that has a lot of spiders. And you know what? I get to see a lot of different bugs in my lifetime. And now that I've come around, I feel like spiders aren't too bad. They're not that bad. And um, I've gotten a little more used to them. So Maybe with time, you might become friends with some of the spiders in your home, but you don't have to. Anyway, I had two ideas for what I wanted to say today as we continue our series titled Ohala. And last week, Martin encouraged us to release our judgment and self-judgment. Tall order, by the way, Martin, thank you. And to prevent perfection from preventing us from doing what is good. And then the week before that, Sarah kicked off the series and invited us to be thoughtful and intentional about the good that we want to do so that we can give our very best. So I couldn't decide. And I therefore went to the lectionary, hoping that I would hear this like holy nudge from God about which message of the two ideas I should pursue. And the nudge was in neither direction. So here we are then. I'm still sticking with the lectionary. We are going to talk about Nehemiah chapter eight. But first, I'm going to give some background because this is one of those stories that requires a little bit of that. So Nehemiah was appointed to be the governor of Judah after the Israelites returned from exile to Jerusalem. At the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites return and they see their city in ruins. It says that they come back, quote, in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it's under Nehemiah's watch that this wall is rebuilt. Can you just imagine the collective and personal heartache people experienced? The rebuilding was not a piece of cake either. Israel's enemies, other tribes that surrounded theirs, were united against them. They were constantly taunting them and trying to waylay their plans to rebuild. Before they could ever think about a temple rebuilding or a town rebuilding, they had to rebuild the wall around the city. So after about two months of constant rebuilding, finally, they're done. And then the Israelites have to undertake a very different kind of rebuilding, this time a spiritual and moral rebuilding. On the new year, which is now known as Rosh Hashanah, the priest Ezra reads the Torah, also referred to um, in this translation as the instruction to the people of Israel. Everyone was there. It was packed. There were children, adults, people of all genders. He read for hours, and the people helped each other to understand what was being read aloud to them. So Nehemiah chapter 8, 
verses 9 through 12 says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all of the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. They said this because all the people wept when they heard the words of the instruction. Go, eat rich food and drink something sweet, he said to them, and send portions of this to any who have nothing ready. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't be sad because the joy from the Lord is your strength. The Levites also calmed all of the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Don't be sad. Then all of the people went to eat and to drink and to send portions and to have a great celebration because they understood what had been said to them. Later, after eight days of reading from the Torah and then two more weeks of observance, the Israelites began to confess their sins in this sort of collective way and also the sins of their ancestors. Don't be sad, they may have remembered from that first day because the joy from the Lord is your strength. When the Israelites hear the extent of God's wishes for them and how far they'd strayed from adhering to them, they wept. They were heartbroken. And I'm sure that they must have felt some guilt, probably even some shame. But their leader said to them, rejoice instead, be grateful instead. Guilt is a natural response when we realize we've done something wrong. It says, that action was bad, or maybe something like, what I said was bad. Shame, on the other hand, makes our behaviors about our character. It says, because of what I did, I am bad. Now, I think it's possible that the Levites were saying to the rest of the people, don't be ashamed, don't give in to shame, don't be immobilized by shame. The Israelites had an encounter with accountability. God had a calling for them, a calling to transformation and out of the way that things had been. And they responded with understanding and with gratitude and later with repentance. And they managed as a people to somehow bypass shame and move toward transformation. Shame produces spiritual gridlock. I think the Levites were so wise here, acknowledging through their public exhortations that shame can sometimes be a self-focused response to accountability or to opportunity. Shame fixes our attention on ourselves and the way things are and not on what we spiritually stand to gain. At some point, probably many points in our personal and communal journeys of faith, we will be called by God to transformation. Little transformations, big transformations, and whether we meet the opportunity with shame or with thanksgiving, may make all the difference. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a young rich guy, look, you asked me how to be perfect, and you gave me a list of all the good that you did. You want to be perfect? Like, actually perfect? 
fine. Then give away everything you own. And that man went away ashamed, perhaps unaware that the question he was really asking, what's still, sorry, the question that he asked, what still do I lack, was really a proxy for the question he had, which was, how do I live in a way that is life-affirming and faithful to God's call to me? This slide right here, I neglected to look up the artist, but is a, an older Chinese traditional style painting of this scene where Jesus is telling the young rich man um, how to live a quote unquote perfect life. And so to this question, Jesus, this real question that the young rich guy has, Jesus later answers by talking to his disciples. And he says something like, by our human efforts, we will never reach perfection. But if we rely on God, we can be transformed. The rich man's distress over what he could not do perfectly clouded his ability to understand what Jesus was really saying. That we are not called to perfection by our own strength, but neither are we called to shame. We may not have had the past that we wish for today, but our hopes, our Christ-likeness, and our world are still to be determined. Reckoning with one's personal or communal past is not a risk-free activity. It's a commitment. In Germany, for example, teachers reckon with a national history in the spirit of repentance so that the next generation can learn and be transformed and not be immobilized by shame. Teaching the subject of the Holocaust and the Nazi era is mandatory in German schools. And in addition to the classroom curriculum, almost all students have either visited a concentration camp or a Holocaust memorial or museum. But the normalization of Holocaust teaching wasn't always the case in post-World War II Germany. For years, Germans were afraid to talk about their history. According to Susan Neiman, author of the book, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, what changed was that, quote, a new generation came of age. They realized that their parents and teachers had been Nazis or at least complicit in Nazi atrocities and were outraged. A small and often controversial vanguard insisted on digging up history that older generations had refused to discuss. People call them Nestbeschmutzer, sorry, this is not my native tongue, Nestbeschmutzer or Nestfowlers. But the process they set in motion, a process of uncovering the past and talking about it, eventually reverberated throughout German society. Today, says Neiman, Germans don't learn about the Holocaust in just one way. She says, you really can't escape it. It's in artworks, in literature, in movies, in television, done in different keys and in different registers. There's no one message. In contrast, in the United States, we are still reckoning with great shame with our national histories. Just this past week, the Florida governor backed a bill that passed the Florida Senate and would ban public schools and private businesses from making people feel, quote, discomfort when being taught about racial discrimination in US history. Shame breeds defensiveness 
and defensiveness prevents us from vulnerability and ultimately from transformation. We saw this in action this month, this defensiveness, when too many people refused to recognize the attack and hostage situation in a Texas synagogue as an anti-Semitic attack um, of terror. Some preferred to single out this attacker um, as an unwell individual instead of someone who had unresolved and destructive prejudices. But we do also have forces of reckoning. Recently, thanks to the BTS Center and the Maine Council of Churches, I learned about the Atlantic Black Box Project here in New England. The Atlantic Black Box Project is a public history project that empowers communities throughout New England to take up the critical work of researching and reckoning with our region's involvement with enslavement. The practice of unearthing our collective history is a liberating one. We may be surprised to learn how far we've strayed from God's call to us. We may be saddened. We may be tempted to despair or to give in to shame, but God has not called us to that either. It is a spiritual practice to know our history, our own history and our collective histories, and to say yes when God calls us to transformation. Time and again, the Israelites stressed the importance of knowing, not for the sake of self-punishment, what the past has held, but so that we can arrive in the present firmly planted and ready for the future. Time and again in scripture, God says to us, you are a being in perpetual revolution. Whatever your past is, stop being ashamed and don't let it stop you from becoming what you're meant to be. Let my joy be your strength. God calls us to transformation, which I think is not a one-time born-again experience, but a lifelong commitment to growth and living in the way of Jesus. And I mean this not just about us as a church, because we have talked a lot about us as a church this year, but also us as individuals, us and our own spiritual lives. Do not, you personally, and me too, do not despair. Do not look back in shame when God calls us to transformation. We could look back and weep for what we stand to lose. Transformation involves risk. We are called to reinvest our gifts and resources and attention in new and life-giving ways. And those may feel like really volatile bets. Even when we know in our hearts, they are some of the best bets that we could make. We could weep for the iterations of who we've been and no longer are. We could weep out of fear because we can't be certain about what's next, or we could weep in guilt when the flame of accountability is held beneath us. Or we can seize upon the heat of that flame and be moved. May it be so. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. To hear more about Hope Gateway and to discover how together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, visit our website at hopegateway.com.